Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner as they discuss her new book, Thomas Berry, a biography. So welcome to you all, and uh, a special welcome to my friend and colleague, Mary Evelyn Tucker. Um, many of you know Mary Evelyn's work, which is why you're here, but for those of you who don't, and for those who will be listening or watching the video afterward, uh, Mary Evelyn Tucker is, um, I, I think it's fair to say, a historically significant figure in the history of uh, the emergence of religion and ecology as a movement. She is the co-founder and co-director uh, with her husband, John Grimm, of the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale. She has authored and edited uh, 20 volumes and hundreds of articles. She teaches a massive online uh, open course uh, on four journeys of the journey of the universe and the worldview of Thomas Berry. Uh, Mary Evelyn was born in New York, uh, studied among, at Fordham and uh, at Oxford. Her PhD is from Columbia in Asian religions, where she specialized in Confucianism in China and Japan. Mary Evelyn studied and worked closely with Thomas Berry for 35 years. She edited a number of his books, including Evening Thoughts, The Sacred Universe, Christian Future, and The Fate of the Earth, and Selected Writings on the Earth Community. She and her husband, John Grimm, are managing trustees of the Thomas Berry Foundation. Tucker and Grimm organized a series of 10 conferences on world religions and ecology at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard University, which culminated in a, a big uh, ceremony at the United Nations. Um, after the conferences, they founded the Forum on Religion and Ecology, which is the largest international multi-religious project of its kind. 20 years ago, the field of religion and ecology did not exist. Today, there are courses at colleges and secondary schools across North America, Europe, and Australia, and a powerful surge of religious environmentalism in churches, temples, synagogues, and mosques. With evolutionary philosopher Brian Swim, Mary Evelyn created The Journey of the Universe, a multimedia project that carries forward much of Barry's work, uh, which uh, includes the widely acclaimed film, Journey of the Universe, which aired on PBS across the US for three years. Uh, the Journey of the Universe was deeply inspired by Thomas Barry's essay, The New Story, which looked at how humanity is in between stories, the religious creation stories, and the scientific story of evolution. Mary Evelyn and Brian Swim came together to craft this epic narrative designed to communicate our intricate connection to the cosmos and the earth to a broad audience. Mary Evelyn has been an integral part of the Earth Charter since its inception. And uh, since 1979, she has served as vice president of the American Teilhard Association dedicated to the legacy of scientist and philosopher Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was a, a profound influence on Thomas Berry. That's what, the, that's what you find uh, edited from a much longer piece online. But what I want to say personally, um, 
is that uh, I've studied Thomas Berry's work for years uh, in preparing to do the spiritual biography with Mary Evelyn. I studied her work further. Uh, but this is the definitive biography of Thomas Berry, who is a, a truly great figure in the history of um, world religions um, and um, the story of the universe. So um, this is more than just another talk at the New School. Um, this is a, a contemplation of whether what Thomas Berry, drawing on uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, began, and what Brian Swim and Mary Evelyn, in their different ways, carry forward. Um, whether this is one of the keys to help us emerge from uh, the global crisis in which we're living. And I don't know the answer to that. And I think the answer uh, can only be determined by all of us. And in, in terms of Thomas Berry's uh, uh, thought, uh, the answer will only emerge uh, from all of us together. But it is a great question. This is what Thomas Berry called the great work. So it is beyond an honor uh, for me to introduce my friend and colleague, Mary Evelyn Tucker. Mary Evelyn. It is truly an honor to be introduced by Michael Lerner, someone who I've admired many, many years for all kinds of reasons. And the wonderful people here who help him, Oren, the people from Point Reyes Bookstore, so many of you, our helpers, Elizabeth McAnally, Adam, who helped us with our film, Drew, who helps us with life and rhythm, and Devin O'Day, who's taking us forward. Uh, I want to begin today with just two things. One is we're all celebrating youth and the students around the world, 125 countries and more than a million students speaking up for their future. And I just realized I wanted to give a shout out too to Frances Sawyer, who is our wonderful representative of the forestry school here um, and a dear friend for some time along with her family. Um, so the youth and their ideas, their concerns, their passion, um, that's in many ways what this is about. And that's what Thomas called us too. He was always, what is it for the children? What is it for this intergenerational handshake, I like to say. And I think we have a moment bubbling up that's very unique that way. The other thing I wanted to celebrate at the beginning here is our brilliant spokesperson, W.S. Merwin, who just passed away. And along with Mary Oliver, these were truly enlightened human beings about nature, about the spirit, about the struggle, about the mystery, about the darkness and the light. And so I'd love to begin um, with gratitude. Is that something I think that Michael and Commonweal carry for us in a very big way? Gratitude for life amidst all kinds of struggles. And this is his poem, I'm sure many of you know, called Thanks. 
Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, thanking it, standing by the windows, looking out in our directions back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you in doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and policemen at the door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you in the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change. We go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forest falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster with nobody listening. We are saying thank you, thank you. We are saying and waving, dark though it is. One of the most brilliant minds of our time. And that is the time that Thomas Berry was speaking into and with and for, with gratitude, between the sad, bad news, between the anger and frustration and disempowerment, he had joy. He had gladness that was unique and came from a depth of soul that I still struggle to understand but appreciate. And part of that joy, I think, came from a sense of the profound mystery in which life is situated with its chaotic and creative waves and dimensions and struggles. And he had this joy with foreboding. They were always together, the foreboding and the joy. We used to spend Good Friday at Riverdale Center overlooking the Hudson with the fading light over the Palisades. And we would be listening to Matthew's Passion and then have wonderful ratatouille and vegetarian food and so on. And it was an incredible moment of reflection with an extraordinary soul. Because most important about Thomas is not his mind necessarily, which was brilliant and luminous, but his soul. And to be in the presence of Thomas was to be in a great mystery. So we would have this Good Friday celebration, and then on Easter Sunday, one of these years, we went over with him to a monastery where he was saying a mass for the nuns, the cloistered nuns. And this was Easter Sunday, we have to remember. And we will never forget, because he gave his sermon on the Black Death on Easter Sunday. And John and I were like, oh, um, because as you know, he felt that was a period in human history where the redemption and creation struggle was very present and so on. Um, 
And that out of that moment of death came this particular dynamic of Western Christianity. It's not alone in that dynamic, but dealing with death, dealing with struggle is the point. And so what I want to say, as some of you knew him, um, this joy was very special, but the struggle of his life was quite extraordinary. And I had an amazing, just brief conversation with Michael at lunch, and he said, where's the shadow here? Such a brilliant question. Um, and the sense of shadow is his own inner struggles, like all of us, right? And one of my concerns in writing this was not to make him a saint. This isn't hagiography, you know. Um, but I think we told it as well as we could, but I would say the struggles lay both in his order and in the educational world that he inhabited. Now, I don't know how many in this room can actually picture pre-Vatican II monastic life. Anybody can picture that? Okay, so a few. It's, it's really quite a dying breed. So what I'm saying is at 14 years old, Thomas Berry left his home in Greensboro, North Carolina, never returned into the last 14 years of his life. And he went away to boarding school for high school. He went to college and then entered this religious order that he knew would give him the space for contemplation and study. Because it was a monastic order, but a preaching order. And he used to say, well, I'm either going to go into the monastery or to prison because I've got to think. He was driven. He was really driven for this silence that we all crave. And in joining this order, he had no idea. I mean, he just went through a couple of years of college and then they finished the college. So he's young. He's not even 20. And he joins this order. It is medieval. You know, it's really medieval. And they have the divine, it's all the way from the Benedictine uh, orders that you have these prayers in the middle of the night, you get up and you pray every few hours, uh, all through the day, marking the day. I mean, magnificent, seasonal and daily rituals. Sounds good to women who have two children at home, to people who are trying to make a living and so on. You know, this was a place of deep contemplation and reflection, but it was also, needless to say, remarkably conservative. If you take the fact that Vatican Council II, how many of you remember that? Okay, so the early 60s, 62, 3, John XXIII tried to open up the doors, let in some fresh air to this very medieval Catholic institution, still trying to let in the fresh air. Um, any other religion other than Catholicism, not true, wasn't considered true. This Vatican Council, said, of course, there's truth in other religions. Imagine. You see, that's the world he went into. And Barry said, there's not only other truth and rays of light, there are floods of light in these other religions. So what I want to say, and, and I'm going to take that to his journey through academia, is he entered a religious order that provided a space for reflection, but was deeply conservative. And he had to break out of that. That's not easy. 
It's really not easy. He went through uh, into academia. His order didn't want him to teach. They wanted him to do some preaching and meditate, preaching and meditate. And he said, ultimately, at 45, he said, I'm leaving if you don't let me actually teach. So he was able to teach. He started at Seton Hall. He then went to St. John's University, and he uh, ended up at Fordham in the last 12 years of his teaching. Now, again, St. John's University, very conservative, diocesan university, and he came up against, with other faculty, tenure issues, academic freedom issues, and so on. And there was a huge uh, uproar and strike, the first time ever a strike at a Catholic university like that. And they dismissed 20 faculty. And at that point, he was called to go to Fordham uh, to teach. All of these were openings, clearly, you know, for the next stage of his life. But at Fordham, he went to a theology department that was pretty, you know, Christian history, Bible, medieval thought, and so on. And he was asked to start a history of religions program. Now, to this day, there's no program like what he created, certainly not in any Catholic university, and I would say not even in our great universities. Why? Because he created breadth of understanding of these religions, not just deep specialization. I went to Columbia where we had deep specialization for the things that I studied, but he had all of the religions part of this program. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because many people know him from the new story stage and universe story stage. What I'm trying to say is, where did these depths of joy and spiritual wellsprings and so on come from? Of his reading these traditions, and by the way, largely self-taught. You see, there were no one to teach him Buddhism. He did a book on Buddhism published in 1970 or so, um, and then one on religions of, of India in 1971. But this was a person who absorbed these very difficult texts and could make them understandable to all of us. So the program at Fordham was astounding. He had 25 PhD students who completed their PhDs in a variety of areas, including Hinduism, including Buddhism, including my husband's a PhD in indigenous traditions, the shaman, and I'll tell you how we met in just a moment. But that kind of variety was extraordinary. Um, so the variety, the depth, the scope, and then his ability to keep on learning, you see, that's what was amazing. And his interest constantly in the world and where it was connecting. So by the time I met up with him in 75, he was already doing an extraordinary course in contemporary spirituality, bringing in things like Castaneda, women's spirituality, and all kinds of things. This is like in the 70s, right? He was supporting the students at Columbia who were uh, in their own 60s rebellion. Uh, he supported those students. So the continual learning that um, was a part of him. We collected a money for a computer for him that he accepted at 70 years old. This is amazing. You know, he dies at 94 and he's using his computer at 70 up until, uh, kind of astounding. So 
I'll tell you two stories just quickly, how I met him and how I met John, and then I'm going to return over here to be with Michael uh, for some conversation and whatever bubbles up will be fascinating for me. Uh, so I do want to say, and I'm only sharing this because it's only with Michael I share my more personal side of, of things, and you may have even heard it in the last talk, I don't know. Um, but you know how we meet sort of our teachers are always, I think, um, it's fun to share them, right? So I was a 60s person. I went to college in Washington, D.C., active in civil rights, anti-Vietnam War. Nancy Pelosi was ahead of me at this little woman's college, a part, you know, George Shen's women's college type of thing. And we were massively engaged in what was happening, right? There was a draft, and we were out there demonstrating. So um, when Nixon was elected for the second time, and we all knew what had happened in Cambodia and Laos and the tapping of the campaign, even Watergate. I said, I was working on the McGovern campaign. I said, I am leaving the country until Nixon is out of office. Um, and I went to Japan to teach at a woman's college there. And it completely changed my life um, because there was no preparation for Asia. You see, in the universe, it's not much even now, to tell you the truth. We have a long way to go. It's two-thirds of the world's people. But um, So I went totally disoriented <laughs> to the Orient, um, and it blew me away. And I had been given some of Thomas Berry's papers. He was writing them and mimeographing them and distributing them in these Riverdale papers, you know, just giving them away. I read them here, and I read them over there, and I was blown away. And I wrote him for a copy of his book on Buddhism, and the miracle of my life is he wrote back. This was an era of letters, right? And so we began a correspondence while I was there. I came back. I went up to meet him at the Riverdale Center uh, for Religious Research, which was a magnificent old Victorian house on the Hudson. I walked in this room, a uh, beautiful little sun porch, this great red oak, 400-year red oak out there. And this is where he did most of his great creative writing for 25 years. And that's where John and I were with him and many, many others. So I walk into the room. I remember what I'm wearing. I remember what he's wearing, his corduroy jacket. I remember the light over that beautiful Palisades and the Hudson River. This is my teacher. You know, it was just so clear. Um, and how grateful, how exceedingly grateful. Uh, I mean, I, I think I would be more than lost <laughs> without a person of that breadth and depth. And the other beautiful gift that he gave me um, is my husband. And so one of the very first classes over at Fordham, so it's Riverdale Center here with this library, and we'd have these meetings every month and all the kinds of neat things you guys do out here too. And we'd have talks and we'd have potlucks and so on. And then over at Fordham, we'd have his classes. So I'm over at my one of my first classes on Hindu mysticism and whatnot. And, um, Actually, I'm, in, I'm studying Sanskrit because he, he taught me Sanskrit. And I'm sitting in a professor's office there. Um, and all of a sudden, the door opens, the wind <laughs> blows. And there's this guy in cutoff shorts and a long beard and a dog at the end of his leash, which was our beautiful Mindy. And he comes in, he says to John Borelli, he says, almost like with this voice, he says, 
John, you have a pencil and a piece of paper? I got to get to this class on Hinduism, <laughs> mysticism, and so on. And I said, what a breath of fresh air. This is my guy. <laughs> um, because, you know, Fordham and these institutions, as you know well, a little bit um, square. Um, and so Thomas Berry married us. And we are so grateful to have this legacy um, of, of Barry and so on. So I think the rest of our life, whatever we're given, hopefully 20 more years, it'll be offering into these complex discussions something of his thought, his vision, his spirit, his soul that many of you understand, and this sense of a story that can bring us together because it will be told in many ways all around the globe, through cultures, through genders, through uh, music, through dance, and so on. Um, so I'm thrilled to be here and begin this journey, continuing journey, with Thomas Berry and his biography. Thanks for coming out this afternoon. Thank you, Mary Evelyn. Thank you, Michael. You know, I'm experimenting with something here. Um, do you know the pianist Keith Jarrett? Yes. Mm -hmm. When Keith Jarrett plays, he says that before a concert, he has to get everything out of his mind mm -hmm. so that going into the concert, he has no idea what he's going to mm -hmm. do. Yeah. I feel a little that way right <laughs> now. Uh, I've been, uh, I mean, usually I, I've certainly prepared. I've read this and but my intention today, and we had lunch with a few friends before, is to get to something in myself that I'm working on. And that is this. Um, it is the question of whether Thomas Berry's new story, Thomas Berry's journey of the universe that you and your husband, John Grimm, and Brian Swim, and so many others have devoted so much of your lives to. Um, is it a key, a key, to finding our way out of um, the dark, the darkness in which we find ourselves? And um, I said to you over lunch, I don't know the answer. I know it's a beautiful story. I know that scientifically it is true that science has enabled us to see the story of our origins in the universe for the first time. So that's clearly true. The question of whether that universe story actually ignites in us a, uh, a fire sufficient uh, to bring humanity together is unknown. So as you have worked with this, because, I mean, you worked with Thomas Berry for 35 years. What year did he die? Um, 2006. So it's been uh, 13 years since his Sorry, death. 2009. This is the 10th anniversary. Oh, 10th anniversary. Yeah, this year. Mm -hmm. All right. So in the 10th an 10 years since <laughs> Thomas Berry died, and you've been 
experimenting with this material, working with it in different forms. What have you learned from the journey over the last 10 years as to whether this has the capacity to ignite uh, something that goes beyond a beautiful story about uh, the true origins of uh, humanity? Well, it's a wonderful question. It's a key question. Mm -hmm. um, and I wish I could put it in a package and <laughs> offer it um, to you all. But I think it's what we're all thinking about and why we're working with others to help figure out the ways to embody this. But I think from the very beginning, as you mentioned, it's a great story for a great work. Mm -hmm. It's inspiration for perspiration, I mm. like to say. And why we did, and, and by the way, I too had a, you know, notes from my talk and I kind of let them go. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I was gonna say is he was in deep dialogue with many great workers, namely David Orr, John and Nancy Todd, all these people who were already thinking this through in a new way. So what we did for the journey film and book and conversations is to make these links more clear. So the film invites you into the visual that we're participating in something that's dynamic and changing and alive. The book gets you reading into metaphor and meaning and so on. But the conversations, these dialogues um, that I did with 10 scientists explaining the galaxy formation and the formation of Earth and plate tectonics and so on, and the emergence of the first cell, and they're just about 20 minutes long. Our distributor likes them one of the best of the whole project. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner. But, and the second half, there's 20 altogether, the second half is environmentalists doing the work on the ground. A lot of people here in the Bay Area, uh, Richard Register, Eco Cities, Richard Norgard, Eco Economics. Uh, we did education with Drew Dellinger right there in the back. We did the arts. Uh, and we did with Carl Anthony and Bellevue Rooks, you know, race, two Native Americans and so on. So this shows the connection, I think, between a story that does motivate us, but also ground us in the work that needs to be done. The other thing I would say, um, and this needs to be, you know, more and more made evident, but uh, that's the offering of conversations. And you also mentioned the MOOCs, the modern, Massive Open Online Classes, of which there's 24,000 people watching them around the globe. And the responses have been along these lines. This ignites something for me. This has changed my motivation, why I'm doing it. It gives me hope and possibility. And the, the third thing I would say is that our students at Yale, and like all pe people of the next generation, are looking to contribute, not all students, but many students are looking to contribute to a flourishing Earth community. And the students at our forestry school, of, after 45 years of teaching, are definitely the best and the brightest, I would say. Also, some of the most anguished about our future. And so last year, when we're teaching Journey of the Universe and Thomas Berry, um, we went around the classroom at the end of the course and with the Thomas Berry course, 
One woman started to cry because she had been watching during the course Thomas's talks that are up on the website, thomasberry.org. You can watch his, some of his talks. She said, I felt like I met Thomas Berry. You see, she was so inspired. And then I had students in my office saying, I was really losing hope for the possibility of what I, disempowerment, right? And he said, and he opens up the journey book, these lines and this book really sparked a new sense of meaning and connection. And he starts to cry. And these guys, a couple of them with the same thing, got together with Devin O'Day and did Instagrams and other social media things to help bring this out. So I think this is anecdotal evidence in a, in a way, but that's the hope that we're working on, that these connections will be deepened, broadened, uh, and so on. And it's astonishing what some of the responses have been, mm. actually. Mm. Have you found, I mean, I remember in your book you described that um, Thomas Berry comes back from meeting Brian Swim and he announces, I have met my Plato. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and at first of all, I didn't understand that because I thought, wait a minute, Barry has been very explicit that he is an Aristotelian and not a Plato. What does it mean he's met his, met his Plato? And I th then I thought, ah, he's seeing himself as Socrates there. And he means that he has met the one who will write down and, right. and continue the work. Right. Um, and then I also thought to myself, um, if Brian Swim is his Plato, who is Mary Evelyn Tucker? <laughs> because um, Brian is an incredible force, but so are you. And um, it's very interesting in the biography that it seems, and I think this is part of who you are, you make yourself as invisible as possible. I mean, I think the first time I saw your name was on page 159 or something like that. Maybe I missed some early ones, I probably did. But um, this, I guess the question is, how do you see yourself in relationship to Thomas Berry? I, I see you as, in some profound sense, his lineage holder and, um, and that leads me to ask, just as Thomas Berry needed um, to go beyond Teilhard de Chardin, I wonder whether there are parts of you in your own journey that have found yourself needing to go beyond Thomas Berry. Hmm. Wonderful set of questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I see myself as midwife to Thomas uh -huh. as, you know, helping the birthing process uh -huh. because his papers, as many of you will know, were in these Riverdale papers, Xeroxed and so on, and not published and available. So John and I, you know, edited them and drew them into hopefully some coherent offerings so people could just get at his thought. So this is another stage of that, of course, as you've, as you've noted. Um, and midwife is a pretty good role. I like being a midwife. Mm -hmm. And I also like, um, I think for the most part, this would be a woman's discussion, you know. Um, I, like, um, I like some kinds of invisibility, mm -hmm. and I like 
appropriate visibility. Mm -hmm. And it's always a struggle, I think, for many people, but for women to know what's the balance between where we are here and strong and we, when we are here and gentle. And it's this Confucian, uh, you know, let's do this, and the Taoist, let's sit back. And that's why John is the Taoist, my Confucian, and the, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, balance. But I think um, Thomas uh, and John and Brian have also helped give my voice, you know, forward, all of, all of them. And I am very grateful for that. So if I see something, yes, your, your last question is really interesting. I do see going forward, and this would be a marker, of a certain kind of writing that's within the scholarly and academic world and, and you know, trying to get these ideas taken seriously. And we know it's a, a very big effort. But I think going forward, um, I definitely want to do writing that's more, much more personal, Mm -hmm. that began here with our wonderful conversation. Mm -hmm. So spiritual journey, um, spiritual struggle. Mm -hmm. I've been writing for 40 years in my diaries, and I've got lots of mm -hmm. you know, boxes of these. So part of it will be to excavate some of that, but also write something new. And I really want to write in solidarity with women um, for encouraging their voices, too. And I have to say... Wendy Johnson is sitting back there. You know, people who have made these contributions out of a deep meditative path, out of a deep organic love of gardening path, and this, I just want to celebrate these, this bouquet of voices, Carrie Brady and her work. Um, and so these are indispensable voices, Betsy Crawford. So it's, it's the next gathering of women's voices and spiritual ecological mm -hmm. movements. Thank you for that. I guess a part of my question was, just as Brian Swim ultimately felt that he needed to distinguish himself from Théo de Chardin, um, uh, is there a way in which, and you said you will go on to do more personal writing and uh, reflecting on women's uh, role in situations, but are there any ways where having lived with and, and midwifed the birth of uh, the corpus of Thomas Berry's writings, that you uh, have found yourself going beyond his thinking? Mm -hmm. are, are there ways in which you have come to differentiate yourself? I mean, if Brian Swim were here, I would ask him the same question, and he may have written more about it. Maybe you know the answer about Brian, I don't know. But for yourself, mm -hmm. uh, is there a way in which having lived with this extraordinary human being for 35 years, midwifed his contribution, that you have thought, you know, he did this and I see this that goes beyond that. Mm -hmm. Is there any part of you that feels that way? It's a really good question. Um, and, you know, I think... What he gave us in the first part, so if you take there's two big parts of his life, right. history of religions, which most people don't know about right. really what he did there. Um, you know, we can get into more critical texts and so on. What we did try and do was take not just his thought, but an appreciation of the world's religions into the ecological dimensions. Mm -hmm. So we did that in a way, mm -hmm. you know, 
Um, and he was at a lot of the conference, most of the conferences at Harvard and so on. So he was definitely deeply engaged, but he was already going forward on this part. Mm -hmm. So we did a bit of that, taking this to another stage. Mm -hmm. What can the religions contribute to our ecological crisis? In terms of new story and universe story, um, you know, I think he gave us an extraordinary, vibrant outline. Mm -hmm. Brian filled in the science because he spent 10 years doing it uh, with on the universe story side. So I think, well, I think the best that could be said of many things is, and I would still call it midwifing though, mm -hmm. you see, that the arts will express this more. There is already an oratorio, there's music, there's the rap that Drew and others are doing. There's amazing poetry um, coming out. It's really astonishing. And then the other thing, something that Drew and Carl Anthony have worked on a lot, I think it's really important to link up the universe story, new story, to eco-justice, mm -hmm. to climate justice, to an inclusive earth community. And while I think that was his intent, he couldn't do everything. Mm -hmm. And so there's room for people to get involved. And this is the next movement that's going on anyway. Our school is exploding, the School of the Environment, yeah, for inclusivity, for equity and economics and so on. So that would be the, mm -hmm. you know, I think the shift mm -hmm. along with many other people mm -hmm. to expand. One of the chapters here that touched me most deeply was the uh, chapter on Barry and Théard de Chardin. Could you describe who Théard de Chardin was? You're also the uh, vice president of the Théard de Chardin uh, Society. Chardin Society, American? Yeah, American, exactly, American Taird Association. Yeah, yeah. American Taird Association. So who was Taird de Chardin? Why, how did he influence Thomas Berry? And what were the three things Berry took from him, which you describe in the uh, biography? And then why did Berry need to go beyond him? Yeah. Let, me, let me get my chapter before I put that. Well, so Teilhard, most of you know, I think, a little bit about Teilhard and hopefully more, uh, but he was a French Jesuit paleontologist. Um, and he came up with a view of evolution that was very unique in his times and still is unique. And as you pointed out at lunch, uh, evolutionary scientists wouldn't necessarily imbibe it because they are, and I'm not saying this critically, they are scientistic and reductionistic and empiricism leads to that. It's a method that can become a worldview. And so that's how science is done in academia. But um, Teilhard's vision and coming out again of struggle, what I was trying to say about Thomas, there was struggle there. There was definitely struggle. Um, that Teilhard, what drew me to Teilhard actually was some of his letters, which are extraordinary, making of a mind. Um, and he wrote letters to his uh, cousin and he wrote letters to people in his family who were ill. But the most gripping thing to me about Teilhard as a young person in early 20s and coming out of the 60s and the upheaval, 
the Kent States and the MLKs, the assassinations and RFK and so on. This was intense, really intense. And when I realized that Teilhard was a, stretch, a stretcher bearer in the First World War, in trench warfare, imagine. Wow. It's unimaginable. You see, so sometimes people say, oh, he's got such a hopeful and optimistic vision. This came out of extraordinary. And he was given a French Legion of Honor for, for his work and so on. But even in the midst of that trench warfare, he felt, and this is something I think that we can take some confidence from or hope from, he felt something was emerging in the evolutionary process in the midst of this struggle and entropy and destruction and creativity and going forward. And that kind of entropy going back and energy going forward, it's part of the whole process, the huge process. So he came to his own scientific and spiritual insight that this whole unfolding from the beginning has something that's interior, luminous, alive, if you will, in the living systems especially, but self-organizing dynamics, what Barry called interiority or subjectivity. And we don't have a language to fully describe this. But Barry would say there can't be subjectivity, self-reflection in the human, unless there is this interiority in the whole of the evolutionary process. It doesn't just arise from nowhere. It's not zapped in from the outside, you see, which is sometimes a more traditional religious story. So that sense of interiority is a great contribution of Teilhard. Now, he did not have what Barry gave the addendum and the change, of course, is that Barry said, we've got to tell this as a story, as something that it's not just, Teilhard's it's, it's not easy to read. That's why I really recommend the letters and the divine milieu and dream, uh, hymn of the universe. You see, you take hymn of the universe and you go to dream of the earth. It's like, boom. <laughs> you know, he's standing there, Teilhard, in the outskirts of the Gobi Desert doing his paleontological work. And he's like, this is a hymn to matter itself. You see, he's saying, this is where the sacred resides. And he even does a mass on the world there because he's saying all the elements and the water and the air and the soils and the plants, this is where the sacred resides, you see. So that is a great inspiration to many, many people. And when we did the 50th anniversary of Teilhard's um, death, I don't think I put this in, in fully in here, but there were... A thousand people who came to the UN to celebrate Teilhard. This was 2005. 200 from France, the head of the World Business Council of Sustainable Development, Cam Dessous, who was the IMF guy. Anyway, he has a lot of followers among French intellectuals and so on. Because of the same sense, the inspiration for this is a dynamic and vital universe and so on. Are the French intellectuals that follow him characteristically conservative or progressive or both? Oh, that's a great question. I think most French intellectuals, of course, are not, I mean, in the, in the fields of academia, they're not interested in spirituality right. and so on. So they wouldn't have picked up on him. But, you know, there's people like Habermas and so on who are saying we cannot do without 
the spiritual now. So, uh-huh. and Latour coming to the sense mm-hmm. of the, the spirit of Gaia. So I think that's breaking down the reductionism mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. My memory is that the three points, let's see, yeah, that's maybe what you have them, the, three, <laughs> the three points that I remember are first, um, the interiority yep. of, um, of uh, matter and, and life that, um, and then the second is the, um, actually maybe you can find it. It's the, <laughs> I think it's the, um, well maybe you'll find it. It's, it could be the uh, geology piece, but I don't have them. And it doesn't matter if we can't find them mm-hmm. in the moment. Um, but the way he felt he had to go beyond Teilhard, we both know, is um, Teilhard's optimism about technology as a positive contribution to the noosphere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Barry really felt that Teilhard, writing at the period that he did, did not see the enormous negatives of impact. Uh, and also Teilhard did not um, appreciate uh, the ecological Crisis. Yes. So those were two of the areas where, right. where Barry had to go beyond him. Um, right, right. Uh, and I think, just quickly, one of them is this idea of cosmogenesis. Yeah. That things are changing. Which, yeah. again, if we took our, our ancestors, evolution is a very new idea. 1859, right. you know, Darwin and so on. So cosmogenesis, this changing unfolding universe is a huge contribution of Teilhard. But let's interrogate for a moment the statement you just made that Brian Swim felt was so true, which is that if we have interiority and consciousness, then that must be implicit in the whole chain of being, right? Mm -hmm. And so let's interrogate that. Why is that obviously so, you know? And by the way, that's Teilhard and Thomas okay. and Swim and and, and in some way Aristotle, as you said, mm-hmm. that it came out of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. So that I mean, it's a, again, it's a beautiful notion. I love it. I hope it's true. But why is it self-evident that because we have interiority, therefore the whole chain of being has it? Well, first of all, it has to be very much differentiated interiority. Right. So. Yeah. So if we take it back, this here's humans, and we take it backwards this way, what's exploding right now is non-human animal consciousness. For sure. Right? But even when we were young, every, children know that. But now we have scientific evidence. It's extraordinary, right? right? So migrations, communication, even language and culture. And Jane Goodall, in some ways, began a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So we have animal behavior. You take it to plants and animals, as we know from sacred geography of hope. Um, tree, the trees are communicating. Um, hidden life of trees, how forests think, uh, the song of trees. These are remarkable you know, books and evidence. Um, and you take it to plants and, and all the way down to the organic nature of soil. This is, of course, what Steiner and other people were understanding. So we can understand livingness, I think, in the yeah, living process. I processes. can accept it for all of livingness. It's when we get to rocks and, <laughs> you know, plasma. And um, in other words, I love to think, as we were saying at lunch, 
that the whole universe is alive and that it's a manifestation of love and that just as love is the greatest power in human life and connects us to spirit more surely than anything else, that that's also true that we live in a living universe and as we were saying at lunch, that the anthropic principle, which says that the universe appears to be designed to support life, and the whole idea of the multiverse is a way for the cosmologist to get around the fact that the universe seems to be designed to support life, whereas the only universe we can see is designed to support life. So that suggests to me that, that the universe is not only alive, but that love is an expression of the aliveness of the universe. So I can relate to that uh, elective affinity of uh, liking to believe that the universe is alive. But it's one thing for me to like that, and it's another thing for me to accept the interiority of a rock or an innate object. So I think it's extremely important what yeah. you're saying. Um, and it's why, though, we can speak about self-organizing dynamics mm -hmm. at every scale, so all the way down. But I wanted to make a punctuation about the cell before we go into non-life and life. Mm -hmm. It's a threshold, there's no question. But in these interviews, these conversations, Ursula Goodenough, one of the great living cell biologists, says a cell has a sense of self. Mm -hmm. And she goes through motility and reproduction and, and so on, on discernment even as to what comes in and out. So the we spent a long time deciding what would be the language that Ursula and other cell biologists would agree with. And she agreed with discernment, which is a pretty amazing word. and that the cell has a self in, in terms of the, these qualities and characteristics that she's mentioning. No, cell, she was president of the Cell Biology Association, so cell biologists wouldn't disagree with that, you see. But I think what our language is insufficient um, to describe differentiation, so we say, on the non-life world. In, in terms of these ideas. But Prigogine won a Nobel Prize for talking about self-organizing dynamics in all of these systems. I mean, and what um, Capra is talking about are systems science as well. So each uh, scale has systems self-organizing to greater complexity, mm -hmm. and as Thayer would put it, to greater consciousness. And that word has to be unpacked of sentience or discernment and so on. But the notion, I mean, you said quickly, oh, yes, we all get that the living world is alive. But this is actually, of course, native people have understood it forever. But we did lose some of that with modernity. Mm -hmm. and we, so this group understands immediately these are living systems. But you take that to a certain empirical scientific uh, understanding. And it's just, it's not there, as Professor Kim would know from Korea. But I think the most important thing is, is um, continuity and difference in these processes. Mm -hmm. um, and that the notion that things are moving from lesser complexity to greater complexity mm -hmm. to greater consciousness 
So any scientist would say that arc of evolution, that's, that's part of it. If it's a directionality or telos, they wouldn't go for that. And, and you know, that has to be left much more open to randomness and uncertainty and so on. But I'm just going to leave it, because I think I've made the, the point already, our language does not fully describe these processes and our interaction with them. But in our own lifetime, so much has bubbled up that is of enormous help. Why? This is not just an intellectual discussion. It's how we relate to and how we resonate with these systems, which Confucianism understood. You're, the I Ching is all about relationality to the world around you. You're cultivating yourself in terms of change and seasons and so on. So that's why this matters, how we relate to these systems. And I would say with reverence, respect, and clearly we're going to be using these systems, but with some intelligibility about how we're going to use mm. these systems. So Barry starts as a cultural and intellectual historian looking at the history of religions. Uh, and then he uh, becomes interested in um, the earth uh, as his focus. And then he goes on from the earth to the universe, is mm -hmm. that basically, mm -hmm. right? And um, so um, in this trajectory, and yet he continues to live uh, in and out of monasteries and in a religious life, all of his life. Um, what dimension of Christianity remained living for him uh, as he took this journey? Great question. Um, well, it's why Teilhard is so fundamental, yeah. right? Because so Teilhard was breaking open the right. confinement of Christianity. Right. Right. And, um, and so Barry just took that even further. But I would say he valued what you might say is the sacramental dimension of a Catholic tradition, Episcopal tradition, and so on. So that everything is sacramental, everything is holy, and that rituals are designed to weave us into these patterns of, of holiness, wholeness, and so on. So I think that would be very fundamental to him. He was also extremely um, devoted to, it would be too strong a word, but very conscious. His name, Thomas, came from Thomas Aquinas. Right. It was a religious name that you take when you make vows. But he felt Aquinas had this tremendous sense of the universe's incomplete incomplete without us, we're incomplete without the universe. And that microcosm, macrocosm pulsation that's very deep, as you know, in medieval Christianity and in and, and all the mystics, really, um, was something absolutely central to him. And he kept Thomas Aquinas's summa with him right to the end. Along with Dante. Along with Dante, completely, the great Christian poet and mystic of the medieval period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner. Did he, cons he said of the religious types that he was closest to the shamanistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did he experience himself as shamanic? Yeah. 
Good question. Um, so he, it's interesting. It's, it's great question. Because he, he avoided, he wanted to avoid the institutional father, priest, even. He didn't want to be called father, um, just Tom or Thomas and so on. And um, he, you know, he had done so many of these chanting of the divine office and the prayers and so on. So a lot of that, you know, just in his later life, it wasn't to say he wasn't praying in, in his own way mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. But um, I think his sensibilities um, were such that um, in, in some ways he was creating his own spiritual mm -hmm. life and vision, right? And um, so that's, uh, that's part of his contribution, mm -hmm. which I think... You know, it's very interesting. A number of his letters are really extraordinary along these lines, and mm -hmm. um, even some unpublished papers. So I hope some of that will maybe come forward mm -hmm. in the future. You and I have had a dialogue about the perennial philosophy, and briefly, I once mistakenly said that Thomas Berry was his work expressed the perennial philosophy, and you said no, actually not. And this was actually shocking to me because I thought that I bought into the version of the perennial philosophy that all religions were based on the perennial philosophy. And he went on to say, not only did Thomas Berry not embrace it, but the Asian traditions didn't, and specifically Confucianism didn't. You are a scholar of Confucianism, and Thomas Berry was deeply immersed in Confucianism. So my first question is, um, did you decide to focus on Confucianism as a result of your work with Thomas Berry, or did, did that precede your work with Thomas Berry? And then, um, secondly, for all those who would be interested, what is it about the Confucian vision of the human place in the universe that appealed so deeply to uh, Thomas? Yeah, and then I'll return to your shamanic because it relates yeah. here too. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I became interested in Confucianism because of going to Japan, living there for two years until there's a sign in the subway, Nixon resigns and I can come home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that whole experience though changed me because I wanted to know what is it that the Japanese, how they interacted with people and all this politeness and so on and so forth. And of course I, I studied Zen Buddhism and I still value Zen Buddhism, extraordinary, extraordinary system. Um, that I wanted to understand the social system and the political system and the educational system that was like keep the, the cultural glue, the DNA of all of East Asia is Confucianism. And so I began to realize that as I came back and studied with both Thomas Berry and Ted DeBerry. Um, and I wanted to see a system that had its own method of interiority, quiet sitting, cultivation by reading and thinking and reflecting. Um, so it had its own spiritual practice, but it was a very, um, it was the best of and a intellectual practice, let's just say. And it valued teaching and transmission. And it valued the sense that the classics were moral teachings about how to be 
a human being, a more vibrant human being, and contribute to the society through education, through politics, and so on. And it had, finally, a tremendous sense of the common good, that as you cultivated yourself, you were doing it for a common good for long-term change. All of that resonated deeply with me. And for Thomas and Ted DeBerry, they went, Ted DeBerry taught at Columbia, was the great Asian scholar, helped Asian studies be established in this country without question. So they went to China in 48, 49, um, way before you know, people were even thinking of China or Confucianism and so on. So they studied the language, did the culture, they worked together on the, it was called the Oriental Thought and Religion Seminar. So both of them, and it's interesting, I do think there's a Catholic, and there was a Catholic Confucian dialogue going on for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Both of them were um, Catholics uh, who felt that same sense, almost like the social justice that I was raised on as a, as a Catholic, progressive Catholic, was you have to give back. You've got to give to society. So they had this very clear resonance with Confucianism, but the depth of their metaphysical understanding. Why is this the oldest continuing civilization on the globe, you see? Um, so those are all the reasons why Confucianism became important. Um, but I wanted to return to your important question too about shamanism, because the other tradition that's in here, as you know, is indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he had this amazing library in this house and upstairs, the whole second floor room was devoted to indigenous peoples and traditions, especially from North America. And he felt, I think, this connection to the shamanic personality, and that's what John wrote his thesis on, The Shaman, and it's a book, now John Grimm, my husband. But the shaman is the one who goes into dream time, into interior spaces to bring back the healing power for the community. Um, vision quests and all of these kinds of rituals. And when we took apart the library there at Riverdale, we felt it was like a shamanic dismemberment mm. because 10,000 books, all the world's religions, then these science books, ecology books, evolution books, and so on. And the way he did that, we would come in, we were teaching at Bucknell at the time, we'd come in every weekend, We'd start boxing them up and send them to different students all across the country, then have dinner and a glass of wine and so on. And he just did this with the most amazing letting go, you know, letting go. And his whole life was this shamanic dismemberment, like the onion, you know, things peeling and peeling, letting go, and yet going forward. So that sense of mm. himself, I mean, he didn't say, I'm a shaman, you know, but he, that quality of, mm. I would say, sacrificial and giving back to the community mm. was... One of the subtleties of his thought that I had not appreciated before I read this extraordinary biography uh, was his perception that as we became a, a pluralistic global civilization or planetary civilization, that the different religious traditions of the world necessarily entered into dialogue and encounter with each other in a new way for the first time. Mm -hmm. But what I found particularly creative, because that's obvious, was that 
in this dialogue, there was a process of shedding of uh, outdated or formalistic structures uh, such that um, it pushed the religious traditions to connect more deeply to the original fire or spirit at their cores. And I didn't know he thought that before. And that, that has a feeling of truth to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think about, um, for example, as you well know, Toynbee once said that he thought that the greatest event of the 20th century might turn out to be not the atomic bomb, but the coming of the Dharma to the West, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so the question of what would happen to the Dharma when it emerged on these shores? Well, we all know that American Buddhism is a very different thing from Buddhism in Asia. And it has a, an aliveness here that many of, it doesn't always have in, uh, in Asia. And obviously it's very alive in some places in Asia, but the point is that there's a, so, um, th so when Toynbee wrote about this, uh, uh, when, when religions encounter each other, there's a, a necessary um, process by which they come to grips with each other. And specifically when religions encounter each other in this planetary civilization. And just like any other process of the survival of different memes, mm -hmm. you know, if you look around, what are the memes that are flourishing, you know? Well, uh, the Dalai Lama is a flourishing meme, you know, he's had great power. Uh, why does his meme flourish and other memes not flourish and so on? So it seems to me that that perception that the religions are encountering each other and then there's this freshness and vitality and connection to their roots. And I wonder if Barry then made the connection from that observation of his to whether that drives us toward um, the experience of the universe story with more vitality. Because he clearly said that the universe story is not going to be absorbed in the same way everywhere, that it will take different forms and different cultural milieu. So did he ever connect his observation about the renewed vitality of the religious traditions in their encounter with each other with his hope that the universe story uh, would, um, would somehow inform the, the great work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, again, there's, there's so much in that. And this is where, you know, he had the ability to go deeply in each of these traditions and then also the ability to put forward these patterns mm -hmm. that would just be mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. And he drew on one of the great patterns of the uh, German historian and philosopher Karl Jaspers, who said the axial age is that age when the great so-called world religions and civilizations arose in India, in China, and in what we would call the Middle East, but I like to say East Asia, the Chinese world, South Asia, the Indian world, and West Asia, the world of the so-called Western Abrahamic traditions. But all of these civilizations arose approximately 500 years before the Common Era, and including, of course, the Greek philosophers and so on. So that was a great insight of Karl Jaspers. And Barry took that 
and said, um, yes, the, these inspirations, they're still, in, they're still right to today, clearly. But how do we see their encounter in our times as sparking new syncretisms and new forms? And, and so a second axial age. Exactly. Thank right. you. Perfect. The second axial age. And right. that was his term. Right. Your cousins used it in his writings, but he, who was a teacher also at Fordham. It's a magnificent idea, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, he, so it's, it's both and. He's like us. We're trying to work these traditions in their wisdom phases mm -hmm. into conversations with modern problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, de Barry did that with human rights, actually, in, in Confucianism and mm -hmm. so on. So, and, and people have done it with feminism and with rereading the Bible in, in all kinds of ways. So these traditions are dynamic and changing. And they have their wellsprings that he was always in touch with. And in terms of the universe story, I would say, um, well, in what Brian and I wrote, we definitely consciously wove some of the strands into Journey of the Universe. So the Confucian idea of cosmos, earth, and human, it's right there. Brian's getting off the boat in the, the film in Greece, and he's saying, what if we imagine ourselves as the mind and heart of heaven and earth? This is, this is heaven, the idea of the cosmos, and then earth and human, that's the trinity. And there's no, mind and heart is one character so we are the microcosm of this macrocosm. That's all in the film. And when we show this film in China and I write the characters on the board, they get it. It's this electric connection. And certainly Buddhism is deeply in the interdependence and, and so on in, this, in the film and book. So what we tried to do was weave these, a la what, what Barry would have done himself. Um, but we've also been even more conscious, but still beginning. All of this is just beginning. So we did a whole conference on Christian responses to Journey of the Universe at Yale, and 400 people came, and the book is called Living Cosmology, and these are from all the different branches of Christianity, saying, how does this, you know, hmm. how is this um, coherent with and different from? And this is going to be a long, long process. Mm -hmm. But the idea is, this is not a story to subsume other stories. Right. It's a story to include and be in dialogue with. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's newness here. That the excitement of the science, the evolution, mm -hmm. the ecology, it's extraordinary. One more question before I open it to questions, and then after the questions, we'll do a wrap at the end together. But. <clears throat> There was the historical Jesus, and then there is um, the living Christ, or the uh, cosmic Christ, whatever. How did uh, Thomas um, relate to that continuum? So, in a Teordian way, I mm -hmm. think, which would be the cosmic Christ of the universe. Right. So, the notion that... Um, the inner ordering dynamics of all reality, you could say, is if, if you connect it to something, it's the incarnational mm -hmm. reality of all things. So the creative rather than the redemptive. His critique of Christianity and the Western religions was that they had 
focused on the redemptive and uh, ignored the creative. And right. For him, the cosmic Christ was the Absolutely. creative force of the whole universe. Absolutely. Which for me is the power of love. Yes, you know, yeah, yes, yeah. and that was true for Teilhard yeah. as well. Right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. He yeah. felt that the creative force was the power of love. Yes. Teilhard yeah. did. Yes, uh -huh. beautiful passages. And did, and did Thomas also yes. feel that? Yeah. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, St. Paul has a notion of the, this is not just, it's in the tradition. Mm -hmm. And I have a student doing work right now on this, and she's preaching on this mm -hmm. in some churches, and people are blown mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. You see, because we've concentrated almost exclusively on the historic Christ and the Gospels, and, you know, imitate Christ and this and that. That's fine. <laughs> but people want, they're hungry for mm -hmm. something much larger and mm -hmm. more inclusive and so on. And it's one of the reasons in Journey of the Universe, sometimes people say, well, where's God here? And we're kind of like everywhere, you know, or the sacred. These words are insufficient to describe the longings of. So the cosmic Christ is, an, is, is a non-dualistic concept. Mm -hmm. And that means that what we call evil and darkness and so forth is all part of the cosmic Christ. Such a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Brian and I were just talking about this um, yesterday, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and so Thomas Aquinas would say evil is the absence of the good, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, I think you're absolutely right. Teilhard would say uh, this is the destruction and the creation are interwoven. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... This is not easy in no. times that we are living through. No. So, but it's never been easy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people forget, you know, we live with a sense of ecological catastrophe. We forget that Maimonides said that you were not allowed to count the days till the appearance of the Messiah. In other words, you know, Maimonides, the greatest Jewish philosopher and, uh, and uh, teacher, lived in a period of time where people expected the Messiah to show up any time. Mm -hmm. And the question was, how many days, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and so we forget that um, the sense of living in apocalyptic times mm -hmm. is not new. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was just as real to them as it is to us. The book of Revelation. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So let's open it up. Kira has a microphone, and if you can keep your comments brief um, and say your name and ask your question, we'll get more answers. Welcome to speak. Yeah. Well, hi. <clears throat> hi. Um, I'm Mary Evelyn. I'm Sally. Um, You've said so many things, and it's so rich. But the question, the word that um, has stayed with me is midwife. Because I think we all know we're into a big birthing. And we know uh, that we need a posture. We need a position. My, young, my daughter, a new mother, says, I need a plan for my children. I don't have a plan, and she has a lot of anxiety. So a... Uh, a position that makes sense to me is to see ourselves as midwives to um, 
this great awakening, this great new story. And it just seems that both the intersections of the wisdom traditions and the sacredness of nature, the earth, the cosmos, are really the two big streams coming together, birthing something. Maybe you have something more to say about what lights you up about being a midwife? Well, thank you for the question. Um, again, I, I don't think I've ever said that publicly. It's all Michael's fault for bringing these things up. Because, you know, it's, it's time. It's time to step up and say, if you can, share, you know, what you're, what you're trying to do. And I think that, that word means a lot to me because um, we don't have children. And I feel our students are our children, our next generation are our children, and I feel such love and commitment to our students, you know, um, and gratitude for them. And I think that most people, and I think men who are uh, awakening to their feminine sides and so on, can identify also with what it means to love in these new ways, to midwife. We just had a wonderful conversation about this um, with Professor Kim. So I would just say, I'll, I'll leave it at this, um, we are all midwives for this new civilization, this great transition. And th things are going to crash and burn in the midst, but we can continue to create. That's the beauty of, mm. of the human. So I, I thank you for picking up on that word. I think Betsy Crawford had her hand up over there. <laughs> um. I had, this, this is wonderful. The whole discussion's been incredible. Um, Michael called Brian Swim an evolutionary philosopher. And I, when I write about Brian, I just call him a cosmologist. I've never had any trouble with that. But I never know, what did Thomas want to be called? Because, you know, I'm writing for people who don't necessarily know who he is. I don't want to, I can't make a long explanation. I always link to, to the website. But what's... An evolution, an evolutionary philosopher struck me as a good description, but what would he like to be, what would, what would he opt for? Well, if we're talking about Brian, yes, the evolutionary philosopher is, is terrific because um, there's a lot of scientists who feel they're the only ones who own the word because we understand the early universe and we're cosmologists. Whereas we, we would like to say all cultures have had their cosmologies, their stories. And so this should be opened up. But so in some ways, Brian's left cosmologists, you know, on the back burner, I think. And I think evolutionary philosopher is a great description for it. Now, if you're also for him, for Brian and Thomas, of course, used this wonderful word, ge word geologian. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I like to say he was a cultural historian um, and he never wanted to be. And we try and erase theologian. Because that's way too narrow a term. And he wasn't a theologian. His training was in cultural history and in the ways that you think, you know, broadly about culture and history. And, um, and, and Vico was, was his dissertation. He was a great philosopher of history. So he took that cultural history to history of religions, to world history, as he just said, to earth history and universe history. So he's a historian at heart. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner. And let me just pick up another thread there. His dissertation was on uh, Vico Gigi Battista. Yeah. 
a great medieval uh, philosopher whose insight was <clears throat> that the legal systems of different cultures defined them perhaps better than anything else. And that connects with the fact that uh, you and Thomas were involved with the um, uh, Earth, uh, Charter. Earth yeah. Charter. Yeah. And the Earth Charter was explicitly an effort to begin the process of creating a juridical global system. So, uh, so that, that recognition that it's one thing to have kind of broad, abstract, spiritual views about the world and the future. It's another to put them into mm -hmm. uh, a format of mores and uh, laws and structures. That's one of the things I wanted to speak about, yeah. so thank you. Um, so as you probably know, the Earth Charter came out of the Rio Earth Summit in 92, and Gorbachev and Maurice Strong said we need a Ten Commandments for mm -hmm. adjudicating environment and development. Mm -hmm. This is still the conflict. And so for almost 10 years, there was a group of 25 of us from all over every continent and representation, and there were then commissioners who were uh, very well-known people um, who were part of that process. And the Earth Charter begins in its, the preface, we're part of a vast evolving universe. Earth, our home, is alive with a myriad community mm. of life. Native peoples in 1970, 1997, when the Earth, uh, Rio plus five was held in Rio, they were weeping to see Gorbachev hold up this first draft of the charter with their worldview in it. You see, along with these scientific worldviews about the living. Anyway, so Barry, and then it goes on to say ecology, justice, and peace have to be integrated. But you're absolutely right, and coming from Vico, but also his own prescient intelligence, like Earth environmental law, and Gus Beth, our dean at, at Yale, would say he founded NRDC, he founded World Resources Institute, mm. he said after 40 years, we are not making the progress, especially with environmental law, even though Earth Justice and others are doing amazing work. So Barry said we need an Earth jurisprudence, and we need a rights of nature. And here's what, we do put this in, in the book, because it's such a story. You know, we, we watched him develop this. Well, there, here's, here's Drew's great imitation. There are these 12 principles of the earth, you know? And so he wrote them, and they're in the back of Evening Thoughts. And he had little groups meeting on this topic. And so on. we're like, that's great. You know, that's really going to be hard. Well, you know, in uh, Cochabamba, in Bolivia, in about 2010, is it? The Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Nature, it went all the way to the UN for a vote. And there are now, as we know, rights of rivers in Venezuela, in India, just recently Toledo, this last week, voted for the Erie, Lake Erie. It's astonishing. So rights of nature is something he contributed immensely to. Mm. Yeah. And it's such a powerful point. Yeah. Carrie, uh, you have taught with Brian for, what, over a decade, I think. Uh, as you've listened to this conversation, what, would you, what are your reflections? Hi, I'm Carrie Brady. Uh, 
I first sat in on Brian's courses about 18 years ago. Drew was there as well. And uh, something profound shifted for me then in terms of not getting the agenda of kind of my subculture back east for now I'm, you've got me on the spot. <laughs> um, and I, so I found myself in this deep place of belonging for the first time in my life. And so the work I do now with Ecology of Awakening is really an expression of that, of, of bringing together cosmology, deep time, ecology with my, my sweetie, uh, Brock Dolman, and resiliency, which is really a continuation of the deep, <laughs> the deep wisdom of life through our systems, that our nervous systems also know how to come into balance. So I find this um, over and over wonder in teaching with Brian and on my own and all the ways that we come together around opening people to the awe of the deep wisdom of self-organizing systems from out here right into our own experience. And um, I was talking to someone who came through uh, one of Brian's in my programs and uh, who I can't remember who was it, at lunch and to hear the seed that gets planted even in a five-day course that then generates over time, that is worth all of it for me. So. Thank you. That's great. True. I want yeah, to true. call you out for a moment. Uh, so did Mary Evelyn. What are your reflections? Well, thank, thank you all so much. This has just been thrilling and so inspiring. And uh, there's just so much richness to Mary Evelyn's presence and her work and her vision, that, as with Thomas. And um, This is Drew Dellinger, by the way. Hey, sorry, I'm Drew Dellinger. Hey. And, um, oh, sorry, I can't see Michael. Um, one thing I was struck, I, I loved what, the conversation about, well, there's two, two, two thoughts I had. I love, Michael, how you kind of challenged this, um, whether it's self-evident that because there's consciousness and love and, the, and emotion in the human, that there's therefore in the stones and in the stars and in the mm -hmm. galaxies. Because I think that was really appropriate to push back on that. I, it's not exactly clear to me that it's totally self-evident that we should, I think... <laughs> But I think part of what Thomas was saying, um, and he's got this great line in The Dream of the Earth where he says, the thoughts and feelings, um, the emotions of the human, uh, of human consciousness, the thoughts and feelings of human consciousness are not an addendum or an intrusion into a previously unconscious universe. So, so, one, so I think your pushback, and then I think it's kind of an open question, but the, the thing that Thomas was pointing out is, if it's not present, and that Teilhard, well, that he was getting from Teilhard, that, you know, and, and one of the ways that, that, that Thomas would put it when kind of describing Teilhard's thought and using some of Teilhard's language was that the universe uh, has a psychic spiritual dimension as well as a physical material dimension from the beginning. It's present in the galaxies. And so then the question, so, but so if you're going to argue against that as modern reduction materialistic science has, then you have to explain, well, where does it come from then? Mm -hmm. At one point, and they have an answer for that which is that, you know, but at what point does it intrude or become an addendum? And their answer has been because the brain structure of the, the human brain structure is so complex that, it, and that it's the most, you know, sometimes the scientists say it's the most 
complex structure in the known universe is the human brain, and therefore it's that complexity of the human brain that creates that spark of consciousness. But I think people who know more about this than I can point out the problems with that, you know, with that assumption. And so I think part of what, one thing that's interesting about Thomas is that he says, well, you have to explain where it comes from. If we have temples, if we build synagogues and mosques and we have a religious dimension, then where does it come from if it's not inherent in the universe from the very beginning? So I thought that was a very interesting part of the discussion. And then I'll just close by saying I loved the comment about the, the, the dialogue about Thomas as a prophet or as a shaman. And, you know, one time I, a woman in Palo Alto said that she came up to and she knew Thomas a very long time. And she said after a talk, she said, Thomas, you're a prophet. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm a shaman. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't like claiming that he was a shaman. As, but he was saying in a sense that it was part of his critique. It was part of his critique was that there's been such a religious emphasis on the prophetic personality, the one that challenges the power structure, that uses, um, you know, uh, stark and sometimes brash and even offensive language to challenge the politics and the king and demand a religious, uh, you know, reformation type of thing. That's the prophetic personality. And he was saying that what we need, we've had a lot of that, and we, what we need now is the shamanic personality that helps a, a community get in touch with the cosmos itself. And so he, he was creating a consciousness in which the universe and the cosmos would be present to us in a different way. You know, and so I think and he often talked about creating a constituency through his teaching and his speaking and his writing. But I think he also it was a little bit tongue in cheek and he wasn't claiming that he was a shaman in the exact way that an indigenous shaman is a shaman. But he was acknowledging that rather than and he also was a prophet, too. And I think I think we can say that he, even though he was, you know, playfully saying, I'm not a prophet, I'm a shaman. He definitely had a prophetic dimension, too, that I'm sure he, that he recognized and Thank would you. acknowledge. Yeah. But that shamanic quality was putting us in touch with the, you know, a con creating a consciousness Beautiful. of, of univ cosmic communion. Thank you. Uh, Devin, since you're nearby and since you're working so closely with both Brian and Mary Evelyn on the journey of the universe and really making this your life work, what are your reflections on uh, the conversation? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Devin. Um, yeah, I thought the first question that you asked, this? Um, the first question that you asked of, is this the key or is this one of the keys? I think that that's such an interesting question that needs to constantly be reflected on. How does this story function with re respect to society? How can someone take it in and bring it into their worldview? And, um, that's why I really look to Mary Evelyn and Brian as mentors and as kind of case studies on how to bring this work into one's life and be an ambassador, ambassador for the story and take it around the world and how to, um, I really do love this concept of midwife, like how to bring this into the world in a graceful way is something that I think is so important to, to figure out and that we're in the process of figuring out um, how do we not just focus on the direness of the situation, but also have this hope and this inspiration and this broader vision. I think that the story does a lot, the journey of the universe story does a lot to inspire that hope. And um, that's something that's been very valuable for me. Thank you. Yeah. Other questions and thoughts? Teresita? Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm Teresita. 
And I was curious, Mary Evelyn, you spoke of Thomas's uh, both joy and sense of foreboding. Mm -hmm. And you connected, if I heard you correctly, to his oh, sense really? of the mystery, that he could maybe oh, hold both because he was grounded in the mystery. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could uh, maybe expound on that as I think for me and maybe others, that balance of sort of joy and the thanks poem that you opened our session with, right? Mm -hmm. Thank you in the midst of all our troubles and how do we find that balance and what can we learn from Thomas? Beautiful question. Teresita is doing her dissertation with Brian um, and Teilhard is part of it. Um, and John Grimm, my husband's part of it. So it's gonna be great. There, that's a, such a good question, and it's um, that's part of what I focus on in my own writing, or you know, journaling, I should say. Uh, and it would be difficult to just you know speak um, spontaneously about this, but um, but I think we are we're in clearly one of the most important moments on the planet, and we are clearly being asked to draw up as Michael has been doing the last number of years, the richness of these traditions into focus for our times, the resilience that will be absolutely necessary. And so each of these speakers is doing, of course, what needs to be done. And so between the foreboding um, and the joy are new forms of hope um, that we don't even know about yet. We are creating new forms of hope and that to me, you know, we talk about alternative energies and we have them, solar and wind and hydro and so on. But the most important energy is the energy of the human spirit. And that is, I think, our deepest wellspring for hope. Kira Epstein just told me that Orlan Bishop is here. Orlan, I don't see you. Where are you? <laughs> we would love to hear from you, Orlan. We're honored that you're here. I'm just sitting here enjoying this conversation. <laughs> Good afternoon. I was reflecting in the, um, the dialogue, which, which holds uh, a representative form of, of everything past and future. Like what exists between two or more human beings? that could become reality. And I'm wondering if the philosophies, religions, sciences, arts, everything that we have access to could truly become shared. What might be the results of dissolving it from the content that it served before and allowing it to become the context for something that could emerge? What kind of age would we be in the creation of? So I think um, thinking back into these philosophical um, uh, traditions that utilize content only to be able to reveal its creative power. And now we're really creating content only to serve another kind of need. And I think we, we, what I'm listening into as you share these, these reflections is a, a real longing in the hope gesture to overcome the tendency to withhold our consciousness from its self-serving tendency. Mm -hmm. And let it really be free to be in the dialogue with these other creative forces. So I thank you very much for stimulating this reflection. 
And before Thank Mary you. Evelyn responds, I just wanted to say to you all that when I met Orland Bishop, I was so stunned by who he was that I asked him if I could do a spiritual biography with him. And so the very first New School spiritual biography that I did was with Orland Bishop. And I did it because I needed to understand who this extraordinary teacher was. So we are beyond honored that you were here with us today, Orland. Thank you. Mary Evelyn, do you want to respond to Orland's thoughts at all? Well, it's so um, deep uh, and uh, profound, I think, what you're speaking about. I'm not even sure if you're asking about because it's such a dialogue. You know, I think it's so my answer would be insufficient for the question is what I'm trying to say, because I heard so much. But um, Thomas Berry uh, would say, you know, we're moving we have all we're great transition and, and uh, great transformation and so on. But I think um, if these traditions come up to their, their full potential in this moment, um, and if we have a story that meets them and synergizes and yeasts something new and creative, um, I think we have the potential for the grounding of new civilizational streams. And Barry would has called that, you know, the ecological age, he even called it the ecozoic age and so on. But I'm not concerned too much about what we call it, as long as we have the deep cultural and spiritual and ecological and evolutionary forces that we are coherent with, that these traditions have nurtured human civilizations for 5,000 years, indigenous traditions for hundreds of thousands of years, and this story, I think we have some combination for lighting up the human to make this transition into uh, a vibrant future and hopefully a flourishing future. But I'd love to talk to you more about yeah, your comments. Last few questions, and then we're going to wrap it up and just maybe two more questions. Yes, Jennifer. Can I just make a comment? Jennifer. Thank you, Kira. Hi, I'm Jennifer Stowell. Um, Mary Evan, I think I'm being speaking for many people in the audience, but I want to underscore again with gratitude your use of that term midwife. Several other people have mentioned it. It goes without saying it's a term that often is taken as a feminine gift. Many, many men, of course, have feminine qualities and bring things to birth as well. Um, I see you as embodying that high, high art of being a midwife. It's a term that isn't elevated enough in our culture because our culture values intellectual thought and philosophy over. Our culture values intellectual thought mm -hmm. and philosophy mm -hmm. over the actual difficult, challenging work of bringing to birth a midwife does, mm -hmm. and and you are, for me, inspiring the understanding of how much this talk about the transitional phase we're in requires midwives, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And how much that term can help inform all of us to in 
even contribute to what Orlin touched on, which is bringing, taking content from the mind and using it to serve people on the ground and the planet itself. So thank you many times over for your embodying of that beautiful term, high art. Thank you. Thank you. One last thought or question from anyone? Gentleman here. Thank you. I hope this is not too big of a last question. <laughs> but um, Mary Elevent, Elevent, uh, Evelyn, excuse me. No? I got the V and the L flipped. <laughs> if you were to put on your divinator cap and imagine Thomas was at the podium right now <laughs> to speak to us, um, I'm almost... Uh, wanting or desiring, what would he say or what like advice or encouragement or empowering words would he give to us right now as being co-creators mm -hmm. for this possible planet that we're birthing? Um, I believe we all have a medicine that's being asked to be brought forth right now to really live from our souls and to bring our gifts to the world. I'm just curious if he was here right now what would he say what might he what how yeah. might he empower us great question and wonderful concluding one and it comes back to your question you know it's the great story great work on the ground and i would say he used to do this so effectively in talks he would say well we have these communities and then he would say, we have it right here at Commonweal. We have it with Wendy and Penny Livingston and people doing these amazing community gardens. And we have it with Black Mountain and, and the Point Reyes Bookstore and Geography of Hope and, and so on and so forth. And all these amazing the Zen centers and Carrie Brady Center and Planetize the Movement that, that Drew is doing. So he would say, he would call out what is already in the community and say it is there, the intelligence, the generosity, the creativity, the willingness to be part of this transition is there in immense energies to be tapped into. And that is, I think, um, the confidence that he urged us on all the time. It's right here. It's in the community. Thank you. Mary Evelyn, what? Any, anything I haven't asked you or that we haven't discussed <laughs> that you would just like to be sure we say before we close? Um, you know, you've covered so much. And I was thinking what I would like to say is um, how much Thomas would appreciate you, Michael. Mm. And I want to say in this, these two ways. On your... Email. You've got a wonderful quote of, from T.S. Eliot about humility, mm -hmm. which I just cherish. Each time I read that, and I'm like, that is so beautiful. And I believe on your door, you have Goethe's poem on commitment, mm -hmm. right? And those two notions are something you embody, Commonweal embodies, this community of Oren and Kira, and on and on and on, and Jennifer. I cannot say enough mm. about humility and commitment and what you have done. Mm. So can you join me in thanking oh. Michael Lerner?
and, and now, can we thank Mary Evelyn for being with us? <laughs> You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.